In the last episode, we had a glimpse of how the discovery of certain modern medicines evolved in today's Western society. We also ruminated on the Western world's fascination with recreational substances like nitrous oxide, which started off as a medical experiment, became a tool for pleasure at the hands of Humphrey Davies and his laughing parties, before it ultimately became an anesthetic. But nitrous oxide became an anesthetic agent only after a tumultuous period that involved the suicide of the very physician who proposed it. The journey of nitrous oxide teaches us that even if a substance has a medical use, it is possible for it to be condemned within the medical and regulatory frameworks. We then traveled to the Peruvian Andes where we discovered that Native American population used indigenous plants like the granddaddy San Pedro cactus and its dwarf cousin, the peyote cactus, in communal religious ceremonies. The ceremony served a spiritual purpose, to heal the mind of the native people. The use of cacti dates back to the period even before Christ. However, Spanish conquistadors denounced the use of peyote and the San Pedro cactus in an effort to exert control over the villagers they sought to rule. Religion and perception clashed. While the Christian missionaries spoke about God, the natives used these indigenous plants in order to speak directly with God. Intolerance, fueled by deep-rooted misconceptions and fear, laid the groundwork for subjugation and even, to a large extent, driving these customs underground. Was that all? Centuries summarized in a few sentences? How did the white man know that the peyote cactus could actually be synthesized into a crystalline substance that could open the doors of perception? And that such a mind-opening experience would change modern culture through the voice of an English writer who ingested it. All I can say is that history, just like life, goes round in circles. What goes up must come down. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of the plant-based substances that is sure to shake up the world of neuropsychiatry and mental health. So, peyote reached the United States from Mexico. You can almost track the route that peyote took if you look at the map and trace the Great Texas Railroad. It is here that the journey of the clash of cultures begin on a wider and a much more violent scale. The Native Americans, as we call them today in the United States, had brought peyote with them from their forefathers and ancestors while they migrated north and assimilated it into their cultures. There is very little known about how and why the natives migrated northwards, but surely this migration must have happened over centuries. These native tribes brought the peyote practice with them, and very little is known about how it has evolved from the original Shawin civilization practice. Spanish explorers and conquistadors wrote extensively about the use of this strange plant in their journals, and this is how we know about them. Their use in religious ceremony evolved, however, before the arrival of the Spanish conquistadors. However, with the continuing war between the white settlers and the natives, peyote became a suspicious character and a cause 
for a level of apprehension that bordered on hatred. Back in the 1500s and 1600s, when explorers arrived on the Indian subcontinent, they were spellbound by the vast wealth that existed there and decided to do business. But the Spanish and the white settlers who sailed westwards from Spain instead of east took it upon themselves to domesticate the lands that they saw were untamed and figured out that conquering the land by defeating the natives would be the best way. The native people of South, Central and North America lived in more nature-friendly ways and had less opulence in terms of material wealth, but had a rich cultural heritage with use of many plant-based substances. Such use is still prevalent in many native tribes on the islands of Oceania today. But in the Americas, after the Spanish invasion, the natives were expected to fall in line. So it is not surprising that over centuries such behavior had seeped into the European immigrants to the Americas. They took the view along with their armies that the natives were savages and needed to be defeated and indoctrinated. On the other hand, the newly established Bureau of American Ethnology that later became the Smithsonian Institute was interested in preserving the history of America. They dispatched an ethnographer by the name of James Mooney in 1885 to various communities to take stock of what the lives of the natives looked like, not with an eye to help them, but from a land and cultural heritage preservation standpoint. This is where the story gets really interesting. Mooney was so dedicated to his role that he even learned the language of the natives and slowly but surely got his head around the Native American tribes and their ways. He had chronicled the lives of many tribes and their customs, and he witnessed many traditions surrounding the peyote ceremony. Mooney documented the practices surrounding the peyote ceremony and became the first white person and non-native to ever be invited to observe one. Mooney chronicled many details, including how and when the substances were used, and even wrote up reports to suggest that this was not harmful as it had previously been reported. More importantly, he noted that there was nothing savage about the ceremonies. In one report, Mooney describes how he was even offered the peyote powder and took part in the ceremony, only to realize that it helped him to see the community with more compassionate eyes. Mike J. describes very eloquently the various episodes where even Mooney was apprehensive about taking peyote, but eventually he was so amazed at the ceremony that he convinced himself to ingest peyote buttons. I know what you're thinking. Why are we talking about one single ethnographer when there was a whole army that was hell-bent on fighting the native tribes? Now let's go back to the societal situation at this point in time. Because forced assimilation had nearly destroyed Native American culture, some tribal leaders attempted to reassert their sovereignty and began new spiritual traditions. The most significant of these traditions was the ghost dance, pioneered by Wafaka, a shaman of the North Paiute tribe. According to the book, Bavoka and Ghost Dance, written by Michael Hitman, during a total solar eclipse on 1st of January 1889, Bavoka, a shaman of the northern Paiute tribe, had a vision. He claimed that God had appeared to him in a form of a Native American and had revealed to him a bountiful land of love and peace. Bavoka founded a spiritual movement called the Ghostans to conjure up the devotion of the tribe towards peyote and to bring everyone along to defeat the invading white army. 
He prophesies the reuniting of the remaining Indian tribes of the West and Southwest and the banishment of all evil from the world. I'm currently looking at the painting of the members of the Arapaho tribe performing the ghost dance. Let me describe it to you. Men and women stand in a large circle while some people look on and the others dance in the center of the circle. The men and women dance themselves to a frenzy that was amplified by the banging of the drums and this communal ceremony took on additional dimensions when more people joined it. In one such description, James Mooney wrote that it looked and sounded as if everyone was moving in synchrony, perfecting their movement and in pristine rhythm. As he had seen before in other ceremonies under the moonlight, after hours of peyote-induced dancing, people started collapsing to the ground, limp and motionless for a few hours. Here is Mike with a recollection. Yes, well, James Mooney, when he was out in uh, Oklahoma, heard about the ghost dance starting to happen. It was, these were huge gatherings, pan-tribal, lots of people from the different tribes getting together and dancing um, day and night for days with new channeled hymns. And it was, I guess, what we might call an apocalyptic or millenarian movement that was based on the idea that uh, if this, uh, if we, you know, working up into a state that was going to precipitate um, uh, a, a big change in the world where all the white people were going to be swept away and uh, um, the land was going to be restored to its uh, original inhabitants. And um, James Mooney was uh, was very interested in this and went and collected the songs and talked to the prophet who had uh, who had originally um, channeled them. Uh, but he was very worried that this was going to um, end in uh, conflict that um, the Native Americans were inevitably going to lose. And indeed, it did. As we have discussed, the white settlers were fearful of this primitive ritual that was in direct opposition to their own religious beliefs. And it was so foreign and utterly incomprehensible to them. So much so that they forced the natives into reservations and banned the use of peyote. As a result, the practice in the use of peyote became much more clandestine, gradually moving it from an open communal ceremony over a bonfire to an event that would happen inside a closed teepee to keep it a secret from the white invaders. Predictably, Events around this time made the natives more anxious about inviting new people in. So we now know how the TP ceremonies came to be. But did we actually say why? Let's go back to the ghost dance in Wavaka. According to the teachings of Wavaka, the ghost dance ceremony would reunite the spirits of the dead with those of the living. And the power of these spirits could be harnessed in battle against white settlers and their armies. Though the practice of the ghost dance originated with the Paiute tribe of Nevada, it quickly spread to other Indian tribes in the Southwest. Wavaka's most influential prophecy was that the white man would be forever banished from the land and that the buffalo, which had been hunted to near extinction by white settlers, would return and bring with it a lasting revival of the Native American way of life. While the natives considered the land to be communal, the white settlers were spurred on by Manifest Destiny, an idea that proclaimed that the white settlers were divinely ordained to settle the entire continent of North America. 
Several wars followed between the white settlers and the Native Americans, and Ghost Dance became the rallying cry behind the Native Americans' stand against the U.S. Army. The last of the resistance that was initiated by Wavaka and the Ghost Dance happened at the Battle of Bighorn. Though Wavaka was the originator of the Ghost Dance, it had become so widespread that other tribes had adopted as their rallying cry. Let's travel across the plains to another Native American tribe, the Hunkpapa Lakota tribe. The Hunkpapa Lakota tribe was led by the man we know as Sitting Bull. On December 15, 1890, 40 policemen arrived at Sitting Bull's house to arrest him. These were not white policemen, mind you. They were Native American policemen in the service of the U.S. Army. When Sitting Bull refused to comply, the police used force on him. His soldiers and the tribes were enraged. Catch the bear, another Lakota tribesman, shouldered his rifle and shot a lieutenant, who reacted by firing his revolver into the chest of Sitting Bull. Another police officer, Red Tomahawk, shot Sitting Bull in the head, and he dropped dead to the ground. After Sitting Bull's death, 200 members of his Hunkpapa band, fearful of reprisals, fled Standing Rock to join another tribe under the leadership of Chief Spotted Elk on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. Spotted Elk and his tribe, along with 38 Hunkpapa, left the Cheyenne River Reservation on December 23rd to journey to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to seek shelter with chief of another tribe, Red Cloud. This set off a wave of alarm across the enemy lines and the US Army grew increasingly concerned about another standoff. It is said that Colonel James Forsyth intercepted Spotted Elk and his tribe which had now grown to 300 members due to the inclusion of the Lakota tribe whose chief Sitting Bull was now dead. They escorted these tribes to Wounded Knee Creek and a camp was made with the intention to ship the natives by train to another part of the country to live on a reservation. What happened the next morning is a matter of intense debate. Small disagreements broke into minor arguments between the army troops and the natives over searching and confiscating any guns that the natives had. The army retrieved 38 rifles and when it came to one deaf tribal man who did not speak English and who refused to give up his gun, a scuffle broke up that ended in a bullet being fired. In a fit of rage fueled by panic, the army soldiers indiscriminately opened fire. Some men and around 120 women and children ran through the grassland and were hunted down and killed by the U.S. Army. The total carnage at Wounded Knee was in excess of 300. Despite the gory nature, the American public were largely supportive of removing the natives from their land. Here's the thing. All through this, the white settlers had perceived that the dried peyote buttons turned the natives into savages. Even though the peyote had already had a long and significant history, its stupendously serendipitous journey was only just beginning. In the latter half of the 19th century, a Native American named Kwana was born to a Native American father who was a Comanche chief and a white mother, Cynthia Ann Parker. Young Kwana had a very traumatic childhood. At about the age of 15, his tribe was attacked by US forces at the Battle of Peace River. And during this attack, his white mother and his sister were kidnapped and sent to live with Cynthia's brother. His sister, Topsana, 
died of an illness three years later, and Cynthia reportedly refused reassimilation and committed suicide in 1871. Young Kwana, seeing the destruction that the ghost dance had caused him personally, was a massive skeptic of peyote. But as a teenager, he was gored by a raging bull in Texas and fell ill. The local curandera or the native healer was summoned. In order to prevent the onset of fever and sepsis, the medicine man is said to have provided Kwana with the peyote, which cured him. And after that incident, he became an advocate for the legal use of peyote. Okay, so what does this young Native American boy have to do with peyote, you might ask? Here is Mike J again. There was a huge massacre of, of a ghost dance at Wounded Knee. And um, after that, uh, James Mooney went back to Oklahoma and uh, he became particularly interested in the peyote religion, which he was invited to because he'd been very sympathetic towards the ghost dance. He was invited by a um, group of um, Kiowa uh, people in uh, Oklahoma to uh, attend a ceremony which he describes very beautifully. It's fascinating. He was the first white person to attend a uh, peyote teepee ceremony, and, which, and they were quite a new thing at that time. So when he met Kwana Parker, what was interesting was that um, Kwana had, uh, had made exactly the same decision when the ghost dance had started. Kwana had stayed away from it because he could see where this was going to go. And he said, you know, as Kwana said, I've brought, you know, I've brought, managed to get, settle my people and, you know, we've got a bit of prosperity and we've, you know, we're a bit of stability. We've got a chance of rebuilding our lives and our culture. How stupid would I be to throw this all away on something that's just going to end up uh, you know, in a massacre. So uh, I think uh, from their different perspectives, both Mooney and Kwana had the same idea that the ghost dance was tragic, but um, they, they were in the, in the peyote meeting, in the peyote ceremony, there was the seeds of something much more sustainable, something that could be used to grow and restore uh, the old ways in the context of um, forced captivity and uh, new white America. So Kwana Parker, in concert with Mooney, started aligning his people in peace against the white settlers and got to keep peyote in return. Kwana, in return for all of Mooney's efforts in convincing the authorities, gave him samples of dried peyote buttons, which Mooney carried to Washington, D.C. That transaction is what eventually served as the gateway to the Western world. Did I say that the fun and confusion was only just starting? Around the time that James Mooney brought back the dried peyote buttons given by Quanta Parker to Washington, D.C., a physician called John Raleigh Briggs decided to try a red berry, referred to as the mescal berry. Briggs had consumed the red berries and documented an alarming reaction. The symptoms included constricted blood vessels, dilated pupils, nausea, raised body temperature and blood pressure, fast or irregular heartbeat, tremors and muscle twitches, and restlessness. He called it a near-death experience and rushed himself to the office of another physician friend who treated him. Briggs, from his experience, concluded that nothing good was going to come out of this plant, but little did he know that he was referring to an entirely different plant. Such recounts of experiences were common as the Western scientists were looking at three different substances, all of which had mescal in their name. Mescal, the alcohol derived from the agave plant. There were mescal berries, as the ones ingested by John Briggs, which are red. 
and finally the compound that would be isolated from the cactus a few years later. It wasn't just Briggs. Mescal was widely used to refer to all three of the above and was widely misunderstood by many others. Its reputation for causing physical discomfort was believed to be its only effect, and scientists concluded that it was a toxic substance. John Briggs published his results of self-experimentation, and this caught the eye of the pharmaceutical company, Park Davis. Mike J. reports that Park Davis tried procuring dried peyote buttons from peyoteros and had even dispatched its employees in search of obtaining more of these buttons as a therapeutic. Remember I said the digitalis was described a century ago by the British botanist and physician William Withering? It is also interesting to know that by this time, the anesthetic we described in the previous episode had blossomed with the advent of bromide, chloroform, and ether. Morphine was isolated from the opium plant as a painkiller, and even cocaine was a product that was marketed by Park Davis as a cardiostimulant. Cocaine. Park Davis successfully made a tincture of peyote and marketed it as a cardiostimulant and as a better alternative to cocaine. Yes, it's no surprise that Park Davis were the first pharmaceutical company to try and make a um, peyote-based product because uh, that was what they did. They made plant uh, products and um, they uh, and they had uh, a very advanced laboratory down there in Detroit uh, producing different tinctures and uh, uh, with um, control, you know, very sort of highly controlled sort of dosages and um, batch numbers. And uh, they were really the leaders in this kind of medicine. And uh, peyote turned out to be quite difficult. They had uh, Louis Levin working for them. So they had, you know, the top pharmacolo- sort of pharmacologist in the world. Um, and, they was, and they were very interested. They thought that there was something going on here. Uh, and, uh, and it was partly to do with, at lower doses, uh, its cardiac effects. And so from in 1893, they put a, a peyote tincture on the market and it stayed, it was available in catalogues for, uh, for, for a long time, but uh, never became very popular. Uh, it was at a lower dose than the uh, hallucinogenic dose. And um, uh, that, but which was a stimulant, and that's kind of where the cocaine comes in because they were at this point the uh, um, sort of leading suppliers of cocaine in America, just as Merck were in Germany. But they were starting to run into problems with the fact that uh, cocaine was, uh, people were describing um, cocaine addiction for the first time at this point and starting to realize that if you took it in large doses, it could be very, very toxic and damaging. So I think they were also always on the lookout for something that could be a stimulant like that, but less dangerous and less uh, prone to abuse. And it's interesting, I think, to look back at uh, this peyote tincture in this sort of age of microdosing, you know, which could hardly have been, uh, you know, which, 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 you know, which nobody really thought about until very recently. But actually, it may well be that that peyote tincture that was on the market, you know, 130 years ago was kind of an effective um, psychedelic microdose. And it could have been, you know, maybe quite good for general energy levels and moods. There were certainly some doctors who used it as a uh, remedy against uh, depression and uh, fatigue. Are you wondering what a strange world and a place it must have been? My question to you is, is it any different today? Can we talk some science now? 
Cocaine, much like the mescalberry that John Briggs took, has a boat-shaped tropane backbone and is a very interesting molecule. Cocaine is a cardiostimulant, but is also extremely addictive. But let's not dismiss cocaine altogether. Would you be surprised to know that some of the drugs that benefit humankind today share a very similar backbone structure to cocaine? Well, if you don't believe me, let me recount to you why. Atropine, a commonly used anticholinergic drug used in surgery, and scopolamine, derived from the Datura species, which is an anti-emetic drug, has structural similarities to cocaine. Both belong to a class of molecules that has the same backbone called astropane. But why am I telling you this? Because it is premature to dismiss something as useless as John Raleigh Briggs did without knowing fully what something is useful for. So let's back up to the cactus. Kwana gave some peyote to Mooney who brought it to Washington DC. Mooney had provided the peyote to Smithsonian Institution and this in turn was disseminated to the Harvard Botanical Center and a number of botanists and scientists who took an active interest in this cactus with a historically colorful past. From here, peyote took a life of its own. The first clinical study was done by a noted physician in Washington DC, Daniel Webster Prentice, who gave the peyote to a subject marked down as scientists. The subject ingested three dried buttons at around 9 to 11 p.m. at night and in a matter of a couple of hours saw all sorts of designs that had features of kaleidoscopic patterns and ever-changing colors. The subject reported his mind was clear. This was so contradictory to the white settler's description who thought of peyote as an intoxicant like opium. But when subject one described a scientist closed his eyes back up again, the colors reappeared. He could willfully mold the visions into a recollection of a stage play that he had recently seen. This then morphed into a dark side where he saw gruesome monsters and even more gruesome human shapes. By 4 a.m., the effects wore off and insomnia persisted for a day. Subject two was even more fascinating. He described similar colorful patterns followed by geometric figures, but he described a rather strange double personality, one where he could see himself as an outsider, almost as an out-of-body experience. And while he was looking at himself, he found the doctors in the room to be laughing at him and almost resorted to violence and declined to take the eighth peyote button. Additional patients followed. Subject three saw suppression of muscle activity and felt weak. Subject four had no effect of taking peyote and subject five took to drumming and kept drumming and described that drumming enhanced this feeling of euphoria. You can ask why this was a contradiction. The physicians in the study, much like anyone, wanted to perform a randomized control study. So pick the subjects at random. But nature had an interesting lesson for them. The outcome was as random as the subjects themselves. There was one unifying factor. The physicians noted marked dilation of pupils and an absolute loss of the sense of time in their subjects. Minutes seemed to unfold into hours, almost as if they were caught in Christopher Nolan's movie Inception, where dreams reside inside a dream. The physicians concluded that the drug effect was similar to cannabis, 
which also produced dilation of pupils, but did not seem like a sedative like the cannabis drug itself. This made Daniel Webb's apprentice to conclude, along with his co-authors, that peyote can be used as a cerebral stimulant to treat depressed conditions like melancholia, hypochondriasis, and some cases of neurasthenia, nervous headache, nervous irritable cough, and could be seen as a substitute for opioids for active delirium. It was a laundry list and not explored further. If you think this is confusing, I will give you another weirder example. One of the recipients of the cactus was an agricultural chemist, Harvey Wiley. I'm bringing up Harvey Wiley because he ran a lab that was working on analyzing food adulterants that much later on, in 1906, became the current FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Mike Jade describes in his book on mescaline that Harvey Wiley was a big proponent of increasing American intake of sugar in food and is even said to have proclaimed that a childhood without candy is like heaven without harps. The cactus reached Wiley and he, like a big boss of a lab, passed it on to a younger scientist called UL, who decided that the best way to test what this peyote button did was to test it on himself. So one night, UL's roommate is said to have rushed him to Wiley's home and according to Wiley, UL was said to be smiling and talking to himself and saying, how beautiful, how splendid, I can see the angels on the street of gold. Wiley concluded that peyote was an active delirium poison, contradicting Daniel Webster Prentice's view that it could be used to treat delirium. So within a span of a year or two, peyote went from being an intoxicant to being a delirium. At this stage, the scene shifts to Germany where a race to discovery was brewing. The race was unequal and we will come to that inequality in just a second. But the purpose of the scientific race was to understand the constituents of the peyote cactus. The first person who obtained this was Louis Lowen in 1888, who was introduced to the peyote buttons by Park Davis, the pharmaceutical company that wanted to isolate the compound rather than selling dried buttons. It wanted to make a purer version of the chemical, but did not know what it was made of. Louis Lowen was a rock star chemist and was a charismatic teacher who packed lecture halls. He tried the cactus in animal experiments and was unsuccessful at eliciting any effects. However, he did succeed in convincing the funder, Park Davis, through a few experiments, but failed to describe anything notable. Park Davis was eager to appease its star scientist, so changed the name of the cactus from Anilonium Williamsii to Anilonium Lewinii in honor of Louis Lewin. And in 1891, that star status was about to be challenged. The challenger, however, was a very diligent chemist from Leipzig who did not mean to make it into a feud. He just saw all the natter around peyote cactus and decided that it was time to give it a go to figure out what it was made of. We will come to this remarkable scientist's other accomplishments in a later episode, but for now, all you have to know is that he was so industrious that he was labeled as boring. Here again is Mike J. Great. I think it's it's a wonderful story. Uh, of course, um, uh, 
Germany was where you know pharmacy was really happening at this time, and particularly the isolation of pure drugs from plants. This had happened in Germany with uh, tobacco, with, with with caffeine and nicotine and cocaine. So as soon as peyote appeared, and it was this uh, cactus that produced visions and had these spectacular effects on the mind. Of course, then the race was on to identify, um, you know, the. Uh, the compound that was producing this. And it turned out to be very difficult because the peyote cactus has a lot of different alkaloids and a lot of different resins. A lot of people suspected that the drug would be in the resin as it is in cannabis, in, 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 in hashish. Uh, and uh, the, uh, Louis Levin, who was the really the world leader in uh, uh, toxicology and plants and drugs at that time, uh, made various different extracts and um, uh, isolated a, a, a compound that he called anhalonine, which was probably a mixture of different uh, alkaloids, and um, then uh, didn't get any further. And then uh, Arthur Hefter, who, as you say, was uh, much less well-known, you know, younger, uh, very thorough. But the other really big difference, I think, was that um, Louis Levin never self-experimented with drugs. He'd spent, uh, in his early career in the 1830s, he'd seen a lot of the first morphine addicts. And he says he'd seen so many people take drugs out of curiosity and then get into difficulties with them. So he never went down that route himself. So it was very different, difficult for him with this because uh, how do you identify uh, which compound in the cactus is psychoactive? He was feeding them to laboratory animals and then uh, trying to observe from them uh, whether they were hallucinating or not. Arthur Hefter, the guy who was responsible to tell the world about what was in the cactus, has arrived in our story. So what did this shy, industrious, almost boring scientist do? Well, as they say, it is one thing to sell the science like a good salesman, but doing good science is a different matter, one that requires thought, self-reflection, and humility. And Arthur Hefter possessed these qualities by bucket loads. Hefter went to a local horticulturist and obtained some cactus that looked like peyote. Then he also obtained a sample from another German chemist called Karl Helmholtz, who had obtained samples from Weichel people in the United States. Unlike Louis Levine, Hefter believed that the best way to get to the bottom was to ingest the cacti by himself. It is also said that he first came to this conclusion because he dosed a frog and saw that the frog did not show any changes, much like what Louis Levin did. Therefore, he decided that it was time to take the matters into his own hands. Call it luck, call it intuition, call it serendipity. It was a stroke of genius. By sampling one species that he obtained from the local horticulturist, he figured out through experiments that the alkaloid in the original Anilinium williamsii, the one that was originally provided to Lewis Levin as pelotine, pelotine alkaloid was a mild sedative. Whereas Hefter was convinced that Anilinium lewinii had two alkaloids, but he could not separate them as yet, prompting him to conclude that they were two different species of cacti. Very similar looking, but had completely different constituents. And just like every scientist, he wrote it up, published it, and managed to piss off the older, charismatic scientist. So if some of you are privy to some heated debates in scientific journals, I say things have gotten a bit less spicy over the years. I have seen some near fistfights at biophysics meetings that I've been to, 
where people discuss the nitty-gritties of cellular processes. But coming back to Hefter and Louis Levin now, what happened was the following. Louis Levin fired off a furious letter to the editor of the journal where Hefter published, where he wrote, I have neither time nor do I feel inclined to make Mr. Hefter understand the results of my work. It was a fiery rebuttal to a study that disproved Levin's studies that showed that there was only one species of cactus. I was really curious to know what would Arthur Hefter be thinking when he came to know of this letter to the editor. It would have demoralized any scientist, but not Hefter. Here is Mike J again. Meantime, Arthur Hefter uh, was self-experimenting, so he methodically separated out the resins from the alkaloids and took a small amount of each and noticed that the resins only made him nauseous, so he moved to the alkaloids and methodically uh, trialed half a dozen different ones on himself and eventually established the one that was causing the hallucinations. And he worked his way up in doses until he had an active dose. And... He then got to name it because the peyote cactus was often referred to as the mescal. That was a term that was used quite a lot. So he called the alkaloid mescaline. So what did Hefter do? Can we dig a bit deeper? It surely makes a case for a careful and diligent science. Hefter managed to isolate not two, but five alkaloids. And as a careful chemist, he placed them in an order. On one end, he had lofoferine, a strychnine-like stimulant, and strychnine, further pharmacologically inclined, is a classic human and animal toxin that causes seizures, cramping, stiffness, hypervigilance, and agitation. On the other end, he placed mescaline, which he initially thought of was having morphine-like sedative properties based on what Prentice has suggested in his papers around this period. In between, he plays a notorious pelotine that he isolated that put Louis Levin in a fit of rage, anholinidine and anholinine. Now that he had the alkaloids, he had to go one step further. He needed to. Oh no, he wanted to figure out which alkaloid was responsible for the psychoactive effects. On 5th June 1897, yes, it is that fateful month of June the very same month that Nixon announced the war on drugs in 1971. Anyways, coming back to 1897. On 5th June 1897, Hefter took 16.6 grams of cactus that was equivalent to five buttons that caused occipital headaches, dizziness, clumsiness, and when he locked himself in a darkened room, he saw mosaics and winding color ribbons to scenery. Banquet halls with gems which turn upside down, just like Christopher Nolan's Paris dream scene in the movie Inception. His sense of time was scrambled, a few minutes seemed like hours. So this was the experiment with the whole cactus. It was time to figure out how to separate the effects of the resins from the alkaloids. A month and a half later, he took the cactus and combined them to a chemical reaction with ammonia and chloroform to digest the alkaloids and got a slurry of resins. He took the resins wrapped in chocolate paper and felt just a mild discomfort and weakness, but in two hours it was all gone. By this time, he concluded that resins were responsible for physical symptoms 
and the alkaloids were responsible for the colorful visions. Two days later, Mike J notes in his book that Hefter drank all the alkaloids he isolated as a mixture with water and sat down to read. The green and violet patches started appearing all over the page, evolving into a kaleidoscopic vision that then evolved into a very distressing nausea and confirmed his hypothesis that the visions were from the alkaloids. Then by this time, he had the nagging feeling and then started experimenting with the purified alkaloid that he had isolated called mescaline. He carefully titrated the doses starting with 20 mg and gradually increased the dose to 100 mg. At the lowest dose, he experienced mild symptoms, heaviness, headache, nausea and mild visions. But then on 23rd November, five months after he systematically started his quest to understand the molecular constituents of the peyote cactus, Hefter took 150 mg of mescaline and the strong violet and green patches came back. Images of carpet patterns and architecture ensued and this lasted for hours. In fact, Hefter described that he could control the kaleidoscopic patterns and could cause them to change by opening or closing his eyes. This is how mescaline was isolated and defined to be the constituent of the peyote's kaleidoscopic visions. And now what's left is the synthesis of mescaline into a crystalline substance by an Austrian chemist Ernst Path. This literally blew the doors wide open. The Western world did not have to grapple with the silly plant that produced physical symptoms. They could skip all that and go straight to the chemical and ingest it, test it, and experiment with it. On one side, you had the psychiatrist giving it to patients without knowing how much to give them and ended up triggering psychosis-like symptoms acutely or mislabeling mescaline as a psychotomimetic like Kirk Berenger. In fact, Kirk Berenger coined the term Der Mescalina Roche, which translates to mescaline intoxication. All of this despite Hefter's careful studies and showing that it did not produce psychosis. Well, anyway, the psychiatrist saw a chemist's work as an opening, but wanted to push the boundaries themselves. On the other side, you had other psychiatrists using mescaline as the model to understand schizophrenia by using mescaline as a psychotomimetic. And you might ask why? Around this time, it was thought that schizophrenia was caused by imbalance of neurotransmitters in the brain and that adrenaline, which is produced by stress, would somehow undergo a chemical reaction that heightened the hallucinations seen in schizophrenia patients. Therefore, how could one mimic such states? Well, mescaline provided an answer, people thought. This included the British psychologist Humphrey Osmond, who had migrated to Saskatchewan in Canada to become the associate director of the psychiatric ward. He teamed up with another psychiatrist called Abram Hoffer to test mescaline on themselves and to understand how it felt to be in the mind of a schizophrenic patient, and if this could help them empathize more with their patients. On the other side, you had careful researchers like Heinrich Kluwer, who moved from Germany to Minnesota to look at the impact of mescaline on visual patterns by looking at its impact on the optic nerve, signaling an impact on visual cortex using EEG. Above all, mescaline became widely available as Merck and another pharmaceutical company that was the precursor of today's GlaxoSmithKline called Burroughs Welcome 
started manufacturing, and this became a medical tool which fell into the hands of the social elite, the artists, the writers, and eventually to counterculture evangelists who started questioning authority after a mescaline experience. Here is Mike again. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's what we now call the psychotomimetic model. And you can follow it further back, I think. There was a uh, psychiatrist in uh, mid-19th century France called Jacques-Joseph Moreau who uh, really developed this with hashish. He noticed that if you took large doses of it, you had all kinds of hallucinations and uh, delusions and altered perceptions of time and space. And he said, isn't it curious how these correspond to uh, symptoms symptoms of psychosis. And um, I think one of the reasons that uh, a lot of uh, psychiatrists and neurologists and psychologists started to look at mescaline in the 1920s was because it produced these um, hallucinations. And uh, hallucinations were a very, very hard thing to study because most people suffering hallucinations are uh, in some kind of delirium. They can't really talk about what's going on. But uh, Mescaline produced um, what uh, Jacques-Joseph Moreau called an état mixte, a mixed state, where people could be hallucinating, but at the same time, if you asked them, if you said, close your eyes, what are you seeing? Then they'd say, oh, I'm just seeing all these, these little golden spirals rotating outwards, and then I'm seeing these sort of dancers' legs appearing, and then, oh, no, no, it's changing. People could talk, you know, very coherently and articulately. So you could get information about these extraordinary states of mind, which you could take in different directions. Heinrich Kluver, who was much more interested in the mechanisms of eye and brain, and where these hallucinations were coming from, and what was generating these patterns. Um, Kurt Beringer, who ran the biggest study in the 1920s uh, in Heidelberg, was uh, much more interested in uh, who had what kind of hallucination and what you could tell about them from that. And so this was something that ran all the way through, as you said, to the 1950s and to the early days of the uh, rediscovery of, uh, of, of psychedelic, well, the, the term psychedelics being coined. But then it started to be pulled apart, particularly, um, you know, in, in the early 1960s uh, by researchers who said, well, actually, maybe this term hallucination is a bit misleading. It sounds very um, medical and specific, but there are actually so many things we're talking about here. And uh, if people are suffering from psychoses or sort of um, uh, schizoid delusions, then they'll often um, find that things taste funny or they'll hear voices speaking to them or they'll think that people are poisoning them. That's very, very different from what that doesn't happen to people on psychedelics. If you give, um, you know, normal subjects psychedelics um, you know they'll see extraordinary visions and they'll have um, thoughts and uh, they'll have um, uh, you know sort of great um, expansive changes of mood but that's not the same as psychosis there was one person who was carefully watching all of this it was Aldous Huxley the writer and stepbrother of the Nobel Prize winning physiologist Andrew Huxley Aldous had just finished writing his third book Point Counterpoint which was said to have drained him. He was fascinated by the results of the research published by Humphrey Osman, Abram Hoffer and John Smithies. The three physicians were world-leading experts in mental health disorders at the time and were proponents of the idea that mescaline provided the perfect psychotomimetic model to mimic schizophrenia. They concluded via their experiments that the substance that causes schizophrenia was a chemically modified adrenaline or noradrenaline derivative that they called as an 
a substance called as adrenochrome that was later labeled by them as the M substance to denote something similar to mescaline. Aldous Huxley was watching all of this and at once wrote a letter to Humphrey Osmond and learned that Humphrey Osmond was going to visit California soon. So Huxley suggested to Osmond that if he were to be visiting Los Angeles, Huxley would very much be interested in ingesting mescaline and have an experience to liberate his mind. These experiences are well chronicled in history and Huxley's influence in bringing mescaline to public attention and cult following cannot be understated. Huxley, a graduate of Eton College in Oxford, had a very privileged upbringing and called it as a drug of the elite. While there were instances where this was clarified to mean that mescaline was a drug only for the people who wanted to open their minds, liberate their consciousness and break down their ego, the damage was already done. There are many instances where unfortunate usage of words have led people wanting the experience more. In fact, the worst part was, as we will come to later on in the podcast, that these plant-based substances or their synthesized cousins aren't even addictive. Yet the perception and intrigue that mescaline created was one of cult status. Huxley's drug of the elite made people believe that they would liberate themselves from the shackles of the mind bordering on religious mysticism and as a result would make them realize that the world was beautiful. When science meets philosophy meets art, it took some disproportionate dimensions in the next decade that the world had to grapple with. Humphrey Osmond, to demonstrate the acute psychotomimetic and non-sedative nature, convinced a member of parliament, Christopher Mayhew, to take mescaline for a television program. Here is an excerpt from that interview where you hear Humphrey Osmond asking Mayhew to count the numbers in seven from 100. Well, um, here I am in my home, and before I take the drug, uh, Dr. Osmond's got uh, one or two quite unrehearsed questions. I have no idea what they are to put to me. After initial psychological tests, the experiment began at noon. Well, uh, I'm feeling perfectly fit at the moment, and as sane as I ever am, and I'll take the drug now. An hour and a half later, there were definite effects. Could you uh, perhaps tell us any particular colour which you think... Yes, uh, there's colour just behind Tubby there. Yes. Yeah. Colour of... Uh, damn, I, I warned you, Humphrey, that uh, on colours, my vocabulary is bad. Are you talking about the reddish curtain behind Tubby? Yes. And uh, in fact, it has the most extraordinary gradations of mauve and, uh, and, uh, and lights. Sorry, this is just my, my own uh, poverty vocabulary. I can't describe it. Uh, would it uh, surprise you if I said it looked to me a rather dullish red curtain? The time's now just on 1400. And in the last half hour or so, uh, Christopher has been preoccupied to a very great extent with time. And we've had numerous discussions on this. In the interval, he uh, tried to instruct me as to how to work his recording machine, and unfortunately, we were quite unable to work it. He has also been listening to a certain amount of music. Now, I'm going to ask him once more to go over the bad cop sentence that I did, and also to take away seven from a hundred. Now, Christopher, would you be prepared to do that for me, please? Well, you've got the 
at what I would call my um, uh, period of time when I am capable of doing it. Right, but well, I'll now repeat the sentence. To be rich and prosperous, a nation must have a safe, secure supply of wood. To be rich and prosperous, a nation must have a safe, secure supply of wood. I got the two... Right. Well done. Now, would you like to take away seven from a hundred again? Uh, 93, 86, 79, 72, 66, 60... Uh, 72, whatever it is, uh, 65, uh, 58, 51, um, 40, I can see where I trace it still, 44, uh, 37, 30, 23, 23. Here is Christopher Mayhew describing this experience 30 years later. I think this is the most interesting thing I've ever done. And I say that after 30 years in which the whole ghastly business, you know, has been depreciated, when drugs have been abused, when this is our major social problem. I mean, I do know all that, and I hope and pray it never helped anybody to experiment with drugs. Nevertheless, the actual experience seems to me to have been profoundly interesting and thought-provoking. There was doubt in the minds of the BBC who had produced this event, and in typical British fashion, independent committee was formed to review and make a recommendation. Since the experience was mystical in Christopher Mayhew's eyes, scientists, psychiatrists, and theologian were part of the committee. The chair of the committee was a Cambridge physician who felt that Mayhew's mystical adventure was obtained on the cheap. The rest of the committee agreed and concluded that the film should not be shown as the parliamentarian's experience was not valid. There is an interesting story about the two of the most influential figures, Humphrey Osman, the famed British psychiatrist, and Aldous Huxley wrote letters to each other where Aldous raved about his psychedelic experience that he had had with Humphrey Osman. It is said that in one such letter, Aldous was reported to have said, to make the world sublime... Take a half a gram of Fenero time. And Osman, who worked as a psychiatrist and one who believed that mescaline produced acute symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia, wrote back, To fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. Well, what can I say? A pinch of psychedelic surely made sure that all hell broke loose in the next decade. If you don't trust me, let's talk about how. Let's rewind a decade and a half to before Aldous Huxley ingested mescaline. The world was in the throes of the Second World War. Bletchley Park, the place where Enigma code was broken by the codebreakers, intercepted a radio transmission that scopolamine was given at very high doses to induce a sense of scariness and to make prisoners of war speak the truth, and that Nazi doctors were en route to testing another crystalline substance, mescaline. It was rumored that Nazis got hold of mescaline, which was made by Merck, a German pharmaceutical company, and were trying to use it as a truth drug. One of their notorious scientists was Kurt Blom, the Deputy Surgeon General of the Third Reich, who spearheaded the mescaline exposure in concentration camps. And you would not expect what happened to Kurt Blom after the end of the Second World War. We will come to that in the next episode. But coming back to mescaline. Mescaline, when used by the Nazis to dose it to the prisoners of war, made the prisoners of war really friendly to the Nazis. How is this even possible? Well, 
This is not the first time that humankind had discovered that mescaline had triggered a sense of empathy and community. The Native American tribes had long used it and the Native American church, which had just been formed a few years ago, knew this as well. Well, anyways, the Nazis dropped the experiment with mescaline as a truth drug. So the social and research use with mescaline continued long after the Second World War, culminating in the clinical research of Osman, Hoffer and Smithies and the eventual dosing of Aldous Huxley almost a decade later. But in 1950s, a tiger emerged to douse the pussycat. The tiger was another molecule derived from an ergot fungus called as lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD. LSD was so potent that only a tenth of a microgram was able to provide the same effect as 400 milligrams of mescaline. And mescaline became an afterthought once LSD gained prominence. So much so that it fueled many things that would leave a lasting impact on society. Here is our chief mescaline expert, Mike J again, detailing how CIA, after the Second World War, took over the legacy of testing psychedelic substances and fueled the 1960s counterculture. CIA funded a number of clandestine research studies, and one of them was with a psychiatrist in Los Angeles who had a very nosy janitor. The psychiatrist was Leo Hollister and the nosy janitor, who was originally his research subject, was Ken Kesey. So I think um, it was really um, people like Leo Hollister in the early 1960s. We, we, we remember him because uh, he did the um, experiments on normal subjects, which included Ken Kesey, who wrote about this in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But what Hollister was doing there was getting a group of normal subjects and a group of people suffering from psychosis and saying, look, what you're calling hallucination, you know, in one group of people is completely different from what these other people are experiencing. So that was the story of how a spiritual healing substance that blew down the doors of perception of the Western world that was soon to be overshadowed by a newcomer called LSD. We are just getting started. I did warn you right at the beginning that history has a habit of going around in circles. And it hasn't stopped as yet. You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Plan to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast series was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thanked Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services were provided by Romeo Ranch. The scripts were written, edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Plan. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. We thank Think Music for letting us use some of their soundtracks. Recordings were done at Caprina Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Turingyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering for us. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychedelics.com. <laughs>